0: So it's a delight to be back um, in this neck of the woods again with you folk again. Uh, and it's been too long. We uh, uh, miss catching up with Mason and um, uh, and uh, you people. We only wish we lived a little closer, to be honest. <laughs> um, but uh, to have uh, the opportunity to share this passage, and as I was praying about um, what to uh, bring you Uh, I just couldn't get away from this story and I wasn't quite sure exactly where it leads so we're on a bit of an adventure uh, just to see uh, what it has for us but I just find it a profoundly moving and wonderful story when we think of this situation and we think of this woman uh, and realise that the Lord that we pray to, that we love uh, is this, this being and we see so much about him and so much about what it is to be faithful to him in this passage. You know, when you folk roll up here Sunday after Sunday, uh, I'm pretty sure that if you're an average Christian, you don't quite realize just what a militant act you are engaged in. I mean, you could be doing so much else. You could be gardening or golfing, uh, but you're not. You've set aside this time because you're trying to make a statement Uh, You are doing something which the world cannot understand. And this is a story here about a woman who does something that really doesn't make sense on the surface. Uh, She can't be understood by those who don't think spiritually. Let's leap into this story. This is a remarkable story told in all the Gospels. And that's remarkable. So, you know, it's, it's not a story you'd think that is important. Um, You know, it could have been left out without great damage to the overall scheme. But it must be important if all the gospel writers uh, include this story. And it's fascinating that as you look at this story, uh, we read that here it was in Bethany, you know, about 10 k out of Jerusalem, the little township. The house of Simon the leper in Mark tells us the location, but John tells us the occasion. And John tells us that this is a little celebratory party because Lazarus is back. This is post Lazarus's rising, and uh, this is where he lives. And, and, and the, the crew and the family and his sisters and, and probably a lot of the local community have gathered for a shindig to celebrate his second life, as it were. And uh, the invitations have been uh, offered, and the whole thing is going on, and the dinner is is served and so it's this festival atmosphere that's happening about lazarus and and you know I think uh, a lot of the disciples would be feeling pretty pumped at this stage that you know they, they, they sense that they're on a winning ticket here with Jesus you know this is the sort of popularity that they expected. And into this, this scene, if you can picture it, most parties and occasions like that were open affairs in that you deliberately made a lot of clamour and you hung out the party lights, etc., so that people would balk past and gawk. They weren't private affairs. You You gained kudos by having your party open in the street. And in the midst of this, a person enters the house, not just to gawk, but this unmissable figure. She would have stood out like a sore thumb because all the party-goers would have been reclining, leaning on an elbow or on a stool with these low tables, and, and the only people that were moving around the room would have been those serving the next course. But into this room, this unmissable figure steps in and spots Jesus and moves up behind him with this long alabaster vial. And she snaps the neck of that vial and starts pouring it on Jesus' head, an unmissable gesture. And out of that pouring, uh, the wafting of an unmissable fragrance goes across the room. And everyone knows that this isn't just aftershave, this is nard. This is embalming perfume, which is incredibly expensive. It's imported from places like India and Persia. And this woman has just walked up behind Jesus in the middle of a party and poured it on his head and then got terribly embarrassed and and it's gone everywhere. And, and she's got down and she's tried to clean his feet with it, with her own hair, according to John. So you can imagine <laughs> the stunning impact that would have had on this occasion, and the muttering goes around the room, and, and the boys pile onto her, and they start getting a bit abusive. You know, doesn't she realise what an incredible waste they think it's an unambiguous, stupid act from a stupid woman who doesn't appreciate the value of things. That's how she's interpreted. This stuff is, is so important. You've got to understand that this is coming up to Passover and Passover was the time where people got a little bit generous. It's sort of like our Good Friday appeal where, you know, your children's hospital and you reach deep and you reluctantly pull out a fiver and you give it to the guy with the tin and what have you. It's that sort of, that's the sort of culture they're in. And this is the time of year to think of others, not to be wasting such an expensive resource as a vial of nard. Just pouring it on a guy's head. It's wasted on Jesus. That's what they're thinking. This is a time for cultural generosity, not anti-cultural stupidity. Into this, Jesus interrupts, and he leaps to her defense, and he says, you guys don't understand a thing. She has actually done a good service. It could be good worship that he's saying. She's done something good here. I mean, you guys are thinking about the poor and there's always a time to care for the poor. I mean, he's having a dig at their hypocrisy. They don't care two hoots about the poor. It's just the time of year to be generous, you know. He he is saying you've always got that time, but she understands the moment. She understands that this is a unique time, a special time. It's not just the ordinary time poor are in ordinary time but this is a moment in salvation history and she appreciates that it's a special time in fact Jesus says her theology is so good that whenever the gospel is preached this story it's getting past the editor the spirit of God who writes his book want this story recalled this is an illustration of the gospel itself he's saying she's got it right you've got it wrong i reckon you could have heard a pin drop at that moment and this obscene gesture is suddenly canonized as the epitome of godliness Well, it's just, uh, I don't know, my wife and I, I've got to confess, we're a little bit uh, addicted to the SBS On Demand Nordic Noir series when they come up. And you'll note, if you watch these sort of things, the typical plot line is that uh, you launch into the the plot, you get people a little addicted, then you say five years earlier and you go back. (laughs) We're going to go back just a couple of hours here because you don't understand the whole picture unless you understand it from her perspective. So this is the woman's side, the woman's story. Let's look at it from her perspective. I mean, this night comes around, and it's nighttime, the time of partying, and... She can hear a cacophony, a festive atmosphere, the laughter and the singing and the musicians up the laneways. And through this little town of Bethany, these, these noises bouncing off the walls of the laneways and filtering down to her house. She can see the glow on the horizon. She's not invited. She's not part of that, but it gets her thinking. And. She knows. Maybe she's actually heard John the Baptist. He preached around these parts and he was massive. And it was John the Baptist that had pointed out that this Jesus, this messianic figure, was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Maybe that's in her mind. But she's certainly heard of the signs that Jesus has done that marks him out as the God of the Old Testament. He recapitulates the very actions of God. And the epitome sign is Lazarus, and that's happened in their own midst. Everyone knows that Lazarus is alive. So not only is this guy the Lamb of God, he is the author of life. And she's starting to feel a sense of awe that in her little neighborhood... Only a few metres away resides the creator of all things. And if she'd been any sort of social uh, citizen, she would have also heard the rumours that the high priests, the hoi polloi, are intent on destroying this one. And then she remembers... We're heading to Passover, where a spotless lamb would be sacrificed for the nation. And she joins the dots. In her own thought world, she suddenly realizes that she hasn't got a moment to spare. She feels claimed by this knowledge And she thinks, how can I respond to him? What can I offer? All she has is an heirloom hidden under the floor in a secret place. This heirloom would have been passed down generationally. It's her superannuation, folks. It's all she has. She pushes away the table, she rolls back the carpet, she goes to her secret place, she pulls out the vial. And with the vial in hand and a heart and a mouth, she gate crashes this party as one uninvited. She spots the man and she goes up behind him and she loses the lot. What she is doing here is so profound it's so astonishing there's two aspects of this you see she is doing something just like the old testament prophets it's like a prophetic action she's going up behind jesus she's breaking the vial she is anointing him who did you anoint you anoint a king She's doing an audacious prophetic act like a prophet would in the Old Testament. She's anointing her king. But at the same time, she's anointing him with burial fluid. She gets it. And she is saying the most profound sermon without words. And it strikes a chord in the heart of the Saviour. She's saying, despite all this, I get you. And he's saying, I know. I receive your worship. She has a level of gratitude that outweighs her embarrassment as being a social misfit. And she does this because her love of Jesus matters more. It's astonishing that effectively what is happening here is the Lord is endorsing her as a prophet of the gospel. And she effectively is tripping the switch that rolls out the rolling stock of the passion. It starts here. So God is turning towards the cross and the cross is going to be his son's coronation. That's the paradox of the gospel. We have to hold these two things in tension. That the way God wants to be honored is to be the rotten sin bearer for the nation. To be buried as the ultimate coronation. It demands a burning question that needs to be answered. It demands a resolution, this story. As I read this story, I think in Mark's gospel particularly, how come this nameless nobody gets it? The gospel, the tension, the paradox of the gospel. How come she gets it? But the disciples who have traveled for years with Jesus and in the last period of his ministry, three times in Mark records that Jesus points out from Caesarea Philippi up to this point that he is going to go to the cross. He's going to be rejected by the best in town and he's going to be spat upon and scourged and die. And each time he says it, you know what they say? They can't understand it, so they don't hear it. What they can't process, they dispense. Now, I've got to ask, why is it that these people, they're sitting there in this night, seeing Lazarus in front of them, seeing Jerusalem in front of them. They're joining the dots in a different way they're saying we could take this guy out on the hustings we'll make galilee great again we're going to march on the capital we have the invincible argument this is our day in the sun we're going to turn things upside down that's what they're thinking how come they're so wrong they're wrong because of their theological method oh they love jesus They've got their little Jesus jigsaw piece. But they want to ram that piece, whether it fits or not, into the puzzle gap in their own story narrative. A narrative of them getting justice their way. Of their idea of the good life. And they're going to ram Jesus in even if he doesn't fit and isn't it a fascinating picture that probably the most honest of the disciples in this room that night if you read on in verse 10 is Judas because he gets it and he understands what Jesus is saying and he has no place for a dead Jesus he has no burial in his theology he has no atonement in his theology he only has victory, victory, victory his victory, of his story. And so that night, he goes out and he works out, he switches teams and he goes to the enemy to conspire to deliver up Jesus. That's an astonishingly powerful moment, isn't it? When people are moving all over the place in their allegiance. But folks, my concern is to ask myself, who am I most like? Am I most like the disciples, or am I most like this nameless woman? How good and legitimate is my theological picture of the gospel? Why am I in this? Why do I roll up to church? Why do I worship? Why do I give to Christian mission? Why do I do all those things? Why, why, why? It could be that I'm actually a pagan with just a bit of a Christian laminate. Oh, I like my little jigsaw piece, Jesus. But the revolution that makes a Christian is when we don't just have him fit our picture, but we say to him, you take the whole box. We hand over all the pieces and we say rearrange my life according to your frame, your intention, according to the destination of history. You know, recently I, uh, well, it's not that recently, um, I used to play with a Christian tennis team years ago at church team. And there was a particular woman in this team and a lot of the other people in her team she envied. It was not a heinous envy, just a little Christian one. and She, uh, she envied for the fact that uh, these uh, ladies, particularly in the ladies' no, part of the, uh, the tournament, uh, they all uh, they lived in Malvern. How dare they? She, uh, she only lived in Chadston. And for years, she was trying to work out how she can raise the capital and get her husband to work harder and grow more wool and, uh, so that she can move to Malvern, where all the lovely people left. Now,, yeah, she liked Jesus on the side. she played for a Christian team, but really, her real narrative was, "I will be fulfilled when I pay rates to the city of Malvern." <laughs> and then, astonishingly, she couldn't afford to live in Malvern, but astonishingly, she found a granny flat up a, an axe-handle block at the back of another house, and they bought it. They moved out of quite an interesting, you know, nice street and a, a mid-century modern home in Chadston into this axe-handle, and then she could go and play tennis with her fellow Malvern ladies. And that was feeling really good up until Jeff Kennett came along and rearranged the boundaries and made Chadstone part of Malvern. <laughs> <laughs> you see, when, when the revolution doesn't happen, we end up belittling ourselves with idols that are unworthy of us. We become lesser people. We all dance to a particular tune. We all have a life story that we want to be meaningful. But you cannot get a life story that's more meaningful than one that Jesus orchestrates. You cannot get a life story that is more wonderful than one that Jesus appreciates. And that's what is happening here. Folks, that revolution has to occur we don't just do our christianity here on sunday then get back to paganism on monday every decision we make every passion we have we hand it over to him as, as that globe from tarsus puts it in romans 12 1, paul says i appeal to you brothers and sisters by the mercies of god because of god's great mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice which is holy purely acceptable to him it's your reasonable service he's saying it's your logical service is the greek word it's only reasonable (laughs) you see if the god who is infinite who is the author of life who is became the lamb of god so that we might be reconciled to him so we might have a future in a world where there will be no evil he wants you to live in that world that's what we celebrated here this morning if he goes to that length to bring you into that wonder how can we be possessed by the ideas of the good life that this society offers chicken feed compared with what he offers you know the wonderful thing about this story is that she was compelled when she understood the gospel to make a memorial of him, she went along that night to memorialize him, even if no one else understood the action. But what she got is she was memorialized by him. She was put into the eternal book in every gospel. He appreciated that gesture. Every time in your life where you have a fork in the road, where you have a decision to make, where you have discretionary spending, every time you say, Jesus, this one's for you, He doesn't throw that back in your face. It goes down in the record, it gets recorded. Because it's deeply appreciated. That's what a Christian really is. She's the illustration. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I would pray this morning that you would bless these people that have assembled here today in the name of of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, to honour you with our time, our efforts, all those things that we do, we do for you. We want to say this is not a waste, but you are worthy. Thank you for these moments, Lord. We pray that you would appreciate them, And this week, in the quietness of our solitude, you would speak to us about creative ways that our very passions might be turned into worship for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.